Amen. But we are going to get into our Sunday school lesson today. And uh, we've been talking about the authority of God's Word and the power of God's Word. Of course, these are things we know. We talked about the inspiration of God's Word and that how it's, we don't just need to believe that the Word of God is inspired, but it should actually inspire us. It should push us. We talked about its instructions. We talked about how that we uh, follow the instructions in Scripture the, and also accomplishing the known will of God, that we can focus so much on what we don't know, yet Scripture is full of things that we should be doing. The Scripture does not give us any excuse to be inactive uh, and say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. There is plenty to work on in Scripture while you wait on the particulars or details of what you're praying about, what you, got, what you want uh, God to do in your life. And so this week, continuing on, we're going to be talking about the authority of God's Word and its testimony, and, and this idea that we should search the Scriptures in order to learn more about Jesus. Now that seems like a really simple statement, uh, but we're going to look at it just a little bit. But I want us to pray that the Lord would have His way in all of our classes, that He would move in touch. Join with me in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for today. I thank you, Lord, for this privilege and opportunity that we have to be here in Your presence, gathered together. And Lord, I pray that you would move and touch today in all of our classes, that teachers would speak your word with a, an anointing and confidence of your spirit. Lord, that you would anoint every ear to hear your word today, God, that we would receive from you, that you would encourage and strengthen and challenge us today with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we start out by reading from John chapter 5 and verse 39. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He says, the scriptures that you search testify of me. Now, I fully believe in the dispensations, that there's a dispensation of law, and there is a dispensation of grace. And again, I'm thankful that I don't live in the law dispensation, but I live in a grace dispensation. I'm thankful for that. However... We read that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us so that we may grow. And then Jesus says, he says, looking back, of course, the only Scripture they have is the Old Testament. And he says, this testifies of me as well. And that we should search the Scriptures to learn more about Jesus Christ. Two important prophets in the Old Testament were both named Zechariah. The first one was stoned in the temple courtyard a victim of King Joash, uh, in an event that comes near the end of Chronicles, the history of Israel. The second, Zechariah, wrote the book that we know as Zechariah, and he wrote it near the end of, of what, he was one of the last prophets before there was 400 years of silence. After Zechariah died, pretty soon Malachi is the last book, but Malachi and Zechariah, they lived right about the same time. It was right after them and their passing that God ceased to speak through Israel's prophets. The voice of heaven fell silent, and the Old Testament as we know it was closed. Four centuries later, though, a priest passed the courtyard as he was going about his priestly duties and came to the temple to perform what he was supposed to do. It, 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 that included attending to the fire on the altar of incense. His name was Zechariah, which was the Greek spelling of Zechariah, the same name. Under his breath, Zechariah recited the prayers he was supposed to recite, the same as his fathers had before him. And 
He enters the holy place. It's dark. He smells the scent that he smelled from his youth, and now he's old. Frankincense, myrrh, cinnamon, pine resin, cassia. And it's almost a soothing effect on his mind because he knows by that smell where he is. His job was to approach the altar where he would pour fresh incense and then prostrate himself on the ground before the table. And he paused and closed his eyes to savor the moment. He could hear the prayers of the saints outside. But then suddenly, he's aware of something that's not the same. There's the red glow from the altar's low-burning embers, but there's something unfamiliar that he can barely make out near it. Suddenly, a voice issues out from the darkness, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And the priest, who was named after two of Israel's last prophets, finds himself near the end of life, standing face to face with the angel of prophecy, Gabriel. Now, in these modern times, something was obviously happening. Modern to them. A conversation ensues, and the angel told Zechariah, this old man, that he was going to have a son, and Zechariah questioned the claim. But Gabriel used the question as an occasion for an object lesson and told the old priest that he would be unable to speak until the birth of his son. And that's when his wife's prayers were answered. Take a moment there. (laughs) Nine months later, the boy was born. The mother got to name the child, and she mentioned a name that surprised the family and disappointed several relatives, male relatives, who thought maybe this will be the child named after me. She gives the name, and they say, no, that can't be right. So they look to Zechariah, the man who hasn't spoken for nine months. He was trying to avoid conversations at this point, making hand gestures, but he calls for a writing tablet, and he presses the implement into the wax for a few moments, and he shows them the tablet. Suddenly, something begins to happen to him. Something unfamiliar that he hasn't felt for months begins to happen. His mouth begins to move, and... The family know that he's going to try and speak again, and they really don't enjoy this because they know what's going to happen. But all of a sudden, the noises turn into words and they can understand. And he begins to break into song. Into song. His words took shape in the form of a standard Hebrew blessing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so began Zechariah's song, a song of 11 verses long, celebrating the return of prophecy by prophesying himself. The silence was broken by this prophecy, and and, and in that moment, John's father begins to say, yes, his name shall be John. And after 400 years of heaven not speaking, all of a sudden there was the Holy Ghost and prophecy again, and the silence that began with Zechariah ended with Zechariah. The first word of prophecy in four centuries was, like the prophecies that preceded it, a written word. J-O-H-N. And this John would embody all the prophets of Israel and the apostles and do exactly what they did, point to the Messiah. This is where we get to, is that it points to the Messiah. If you have questions about what to do in any circumstance, if you need guidance on best practices, uh, it's it's a common phrase to say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? If we want to settle a matter or figure out how to pray, how to give, how to love, we go to Jesus. 
But curiously, we don't hear much about consulting Jesus on something that is at least as important as all the rest. And have you ever prayed to Jesus on how to read the Old Testament? What if Jesus taught us how to do that? He did. And we begin to look at what that means for you and I. The scriptures all testify to Jesus. They all testify of Jesus, and they are the chief witness to Jesus. Did you know that the way they were supposed to see Jesus, the way they were supposed to identify that Christ was the Messiah, was not through Romans, was not through Galatians, was not verses like, and when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His his Son. No, it was from the Old Testament. They were supposed to read the law. They were supposed to read the boring stuff. (laughs) And they were supposed to find Jesus. And we understand that everything in Scripture points to Jesus. This is a less obvious point than it might appear at first. In fact, in the early church history, this was a point of contention, and some people still have it today that really the Old Testament, it's some good stories, but it's not really as important. And in fact, sometimes the way we approach it, though we would never say it in our minds, it's not really as important. Some people question whether the Old Testament really prophesied about Jesus. Some thought that the Old Testament should just be Uh, kept as a Jewish book and, and, and not really followed into Christianity. But the apostles and their followers insisted that the prophets confirmed the gospel and the gospel confirmed the prophets. And in fact, on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the gospel and how Jesus came to fulfill the law, not destroy the law. But we read that the prophets confirmed the gospel and the gospel confirmed the prophets. And this is important for you and I to understand. Let's take a look at the Old Testament in Jesus for just a moment. Because I should begin to read the Old Testament seeing Jesus. That changes how I view Scripture. That changes how I read the book. Is when I'm reading the Old Testament and not just looking to get something out of it, which is extremely important. Quality, not quantity. We don't have time to go that way, but you should read... It would be better for you to read three verses and get something out of it than read ten and not have a clue what you just did. That's my opinion. We can not shake hands on that later. But the Old Testament in Jesus. One of the best places to begin a discussion or a place that we can begin is is a story told in Luke chapter 24. And, And Luke tells us a story about how Jesus taught the disciples to read the Old Testament. And and the background of the story is a little bit unusual, probably a place that you wouldn't go to. But when we start finding Jesus everywhere in Scripture, suddenly we begin to see how Jesus is in Scripture everywhere. We're going to go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 6 to interpret the story in Luke chapter 24. Here in 2 Kings chapter 6, the Syrian king, he plans to invade the Israelite cities and set up a military headquarters. But he keeps getting thwarted. As you do, you know, every day when you wake up to set up a military headquarters and you get thwarted. That's just what's happening here. And the problem was, is there was, an, there was a prophet in Israel, and his name was Elisha. And here's the thing, the prophet in Israel had this uncanny ability that he was connected to God, and God was telling him what the Syrians were doing. So the Syrians would make a plan, God would tell Elisha, and then the Israelites all knew what was happening. And so the Syrians would show up and like, man, this, this didn't work out. In fact, the, the, the king of the Syrians begins to think, I've got, there's a spy in my midst. 
And he begins to question them. And, and, and suddenly one of them speaks up and says, hey, it's not, a, it's not a double agent. 007 is not in our midst. He was never a double agent. He was loyal and true. Sorry. But he said it's the prophet Elisha. And he said, in fact, he knows what the king whispers in the night. Don't forget, you serve a powerful God. <laughs> that while the enemies of Israel are making plans, God heard the whispers of the enemies and told the prophet Elisha. So the king sends his army to find the prophet. He lived in Dothan. He lived up on a hill, which, which they lived up there, him and his servant. And they're there one day. The apprentice, his servant, looks out, and he's like, I uh, don't want to scare you, Elisha, or anything, but there's an entire army coming up the hill. And he gets scared. And this is the story where Elisha prays that the servant's eyes would be open to see what's going on. The servant looks out again. God opens his eyes. And you know what? He sees something else. He sees that he is surrounded by chariots of fire. And all of a sudden, he's like, man, it's not such a big deal anymore. I realize what's really here. We read, though, that the, the heavenly army blinded the Syrians. And they're blind, and Elisha approaches the enemy. So he goes to the, to the army that's seeking him and says, uh, can I help you guys at all? And, and, and they say, you know what? We're blinded, but we've got a job to do. They said, we seek the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says, oh man, you're in luck. I know that guy. Follow me. I know just where to go. So he leads them to the capital city of Samaria. This whole blind army. They're stumbling along behind him, hoping they'll be led to Elisha while they're being led by Elisha. When they arrived, the entire Israelite army was waiting, and all of a sudden, they realized something's not quite right here. And the king of Israel asked Elisha for permission to slaughter the, the, the army. And Elisha says, no, uh, that, that wouldn't be right. He prays for their sight to be restored. But he says, you know what you should do instead of killing them? He said, you should give them a meal. Give them a meal. Because it's not right to kill this army, a bunch of blind guys. That was awful nice of them. Don't really read that niceties in the Old Testament. <laughs> so we compare this, though, with the story of the road to Emmaus. We find the disciples were mourning the loss of Jesus. Two guys walking there, mourning the loss of Jesus, who'd been crucified a few days before. And in the same way, it seems like the enemy has outflanked them and crushed their hopes. They thought this was the Messiah this was the guy that would lead them. Of course, they don't understand what he did, what he led them to. But they're walking along the road and a stranger approaches them and begins to walk alongside them and he begins to ask them why they were so upset. They look at each other like, are you crazy? Have you not heard? They ask him, if, where have you been? I mean, the whole city's in an uproar and you don't know what's going on. So they fill him in on the death of Jesus. They tell Jesus about the death of Jesus. Once they're finished, the stranger that's walking with them proceeds to inform them that you don't have very much faith. And he takes them to the Old Testament. He takes them to the Old Testament. He said, in fact, you've been reading Scripture all wrong. He takes them to Zechariah. He says, you've been reading this wrong. He takes them to Moses. He goes through Genesis and Deuteronomy and Moses' life. He goes to Zechariah. And Malachi, and he teaches them from the Old Testament that there, there was supposed to be a death by crucifixion, but, but that wasn't anything that disqualified the Messiah. That was part of what the Messiah was supposed to do. 
And the stranger that's walking with them says, in fact, all the prophets point to a Messiah who's going to die a sacrificial death. But then he says the Old Testament also testifies that this Messiah would be resurrected after three days. So they're on this seven-mile journey walking and talking. It probably took them a couple hours. As Jesus describes, it would take me more than a couple hours to go seven miles now. A few rest stops along the way. But the disciples, they enjoy uh, having conversation with this stranger. So they, they enjoy talking about the Old Testament and what he's saying to him. So they ask him to stay for dinner. Jesus stays for dinner and, and, and he joins them. And the disciples ask him to say a blessing. And he takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it. And scripture says when he breaks and blesses the bread, their eyes were immediately opened. And they understood who was in front of them. They saw their master like passing out bread like he had just a few days before in Jerusalem, before his crucifixion. And then all of a sudden, he vanishes. The scriptures against all hope had been right. Now sometimes in our life, catastrophes come our way. A catastrophe is something major that knocks us back, that, that, that throws us down, that, that rocks our world. But sometimes... If there's an opposite of a catastrophe, it begins to happen to us where there's something so amazing, so good that it rocks our world. That's what these guys experience, that they are on their way home saying, Jesus is dead, we committed to follow him, we committed to, to put our life in his hands to do, what, do whatever he wanted us to do, and now he's gone. And all of a sudden, they realize that they have spent two hours having a personal Bible study from the very guy they claim to follow. Their understanding is opened. Their world is rocked. They, they, they look at one another and say, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? It was a rhetorical question. Of course it did. So we compare the Elisha story and the Jesus story. It begins to make a little bit more sense in both stories. In both stories, death and the enemy seem to have won the day. It's two guys against an entire Syrian army. Jesus has been crucified and, and he's been buried in a tomb and, and, and that's it. The master and his apprentices are surrounded and hopeless. And in both stories, the, the servants are given sight to see that the situation is exactly the reverse of what they really think is happening. The, 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 the servant of Elisha thinks, I'm surrounded by the enemy and God opens his eyes to see, no, the enemy is surrounded by God. In the same way, on the road to Emmaus, the two guys, they, they think, man, our lives are over, there's nothing to live for, and the very reason to live is walking right next to them. But there's more, because in both, the man who is the subject of the search arrives, but those hoping to find him are blinded to the truth. The Syrians are blinded. The two men are blinded. They cannot see what they really need to see. And the very man that they are looking for is walking right beside them. When they arrive, a meal awaits in both stories, and their sight is both restored in both stories. Jesus is in the Old Testament. The big idea in the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus seems obvious once you see it. Jesus was teaching all of us how to read the prophet's witness. How many of you have heard that story about Elisha and, and, and the, the chariots of fire all around and all that? That's a good story, right? Because that... Just like I've said, man, that makes me feel good when I think, man, the enemy comes in like a flood and things are attacking me. Man, I got chariots of fire. And woo! That's good, right? That's altar call right there. But see, I'm supposed to find Jesus in all Scripture. And that is a true lesson. 
That is a true lesson. It's not to negate the lesson that when you think things are bad, God's got something greater all around. He is stronger, bigger, greater than any problem, any situation, anything. But let me tell you, this book is not about me, it's about Jesus. And that story, if it only has that meaning, is about me. But I need to make every story about Jesus. Because he is the author and finisher. That doesn't mean that when I'm surrounded that there's not chariots. That doesn't mean that at all. But there is a deeper meaning too that I need to see. And that it is pointing to Jesus. Every story. In fact, Paul says it, that they were given to us for ensamples. For ensamples. In fact, we look... Well, anyway... We see all of this is found in the Old Testament. The meal of the broken bread in Emmaus is Calvary. The broken bread was symbolic of Jesus' death given sacrificially for his disciples, his body broken. When the bread is broken and received, that we see Calvary in that when his body was broken. And, and of course, when the bread is blessed, we know the blessing from God is the gift of the Holy Ghost. We understand that Jesus has been in the Old Testament the whole time. They're burning hearts within them. Their hearts burned while an unknown Jesus walked with them, expounded scriptures to them. His presence had been like a fire, the fire of heavenly armies that surrounded Elisha. In reading the Old Testament before Calvary, God's presence had always been with them. Then he instructs them, he prepares them, and they burn for the Messiah, hoping, waiting, but not understanding. You see, that's the key. As we read these Old Testament stories and they provide hope and sometimes they encourage us to wait, but we don't have understanding of what they're really seeing, that it's testifying to the power of Jesus Christ. The early Christians understood this. In fact, if you read, Paul talks about it. He says the Jews, they can't read it because their eyes are blinded. They're blinded. I wonder how many times we read the Old Testament blinded to Jesus. Oh, we find stories that encourage us, that lift us up, but am I seeing Jesus in every single story? You see, this really changes how I look at Scripture. That I can read Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Isaiah. I can read Jeremiah and Zechariah, and I should be able to see Jesus in the story. In fact, the early church, they did this. They draw analogies all over. The Apostle Paul, he talks about the Israelites in the wilderness, and he said, Christ followed them in the rock. They didn't, know that Jesus, they didn't know that that was a sign and a symbol. And, and when we look back, the Israelites should have read that as a testimony of Jesus, but they couldn't see it. We find that the children of Israel being led in the wilderness, being led out of Egypt. Matthew, he found a prophecy and quotes Hosea who said, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And we realize that Egypt is a type of sin and, and that we are called out of that. Luke noticed the Ark of the Covenant. That the Ark of the Covenant, when it was returned to Jerusalem, and David is out front leaping and dancing and praising God. And Micah sees him and says, Oh man, I, that guy, man, I, he's something else. He's dancing in his underwear. You'd say that too. <laughs> We're not advocating that. That's not the point of the story. Just to clarify. Okay? And you know what? We can do that. And... and, and this is not to invalidate anything that we take from it. In fact, Brother Gene, years ago, preached a, a fantastic message about, man, it doesn't matter what people are saying, don't despise my praise. That's true. It doesn't matter what people are saying, you worship God because what he's... That is absolutely true. 
But Luke notices that that path that the ark took on its journey back to Jerusalem was the same path that Mary traveled when she she went to see her cousin Elizabeth who was pregnant with John. And then when Mary arrives, all of a sudden the unborn John leaps in the womb. It's the same thing. That path was a path that Jesus would go on. It's pointing to a Messiah. The author of Hebrews saw Christ in the story of Melchizedek. Peter found him in the story of Noah and the ark, where he likens the ark uh, to baptism. We find all of this taking place. In fact, you look at the story of David and Goliath. I've preached about it. That we think, man, I can conquer every giant. I can get everything that comes my way. And that's absolutely true. But that leaves you in the valley by yourself. And God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. In fact, David is a type of Jesus Christ who went into the valley for you. And he won the battle. And you might have to come behind. Because really in the story, if we're honest, it's all the brothers on the hillside. They're like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Now, okay, that's really us. We're not usually the ones saying, I don't need the armor, I don't need nothing, I'm going into the valley with the giant. A lot of times, we're usually, I don't know, God, I'm not sure. Should I do this? I don't know. It's awful scary. And so we'll wait on the Lord for 40 days. No, see, that's true. That you know what, we'll face giants, and through God we can do things. And, and, and our abilities that we learned in private, God will, all that's true. But you know what, I need to find Jesus in that story. fourth man in the fire Woo! that's a good one too you know what that points to that points to christ when he died knocking on the gates of hell saying i've defeated this i need to find jesus see all of a sudden i read the old testament with new eyes it's not just some stories that i i try to parallel to my life no those stories are not just for you to parallel to your life and find inspiration they are to point to jesus christ because that's where my inspiration really needs to come from and all of a sudden what that does is that takes because i know it's a love story but i start at calvary that's where i start on that love story that he died just for you no he was planning you all the way back in genesis he was planning you all the way through it was not just all of a sudden at calvary he started thinking about you no he thought about you from the very start that's how much he loves you the early christians understood the old testament saints that you know they could read that they could find things in it that the failure of the ancient sacrificial system, it was there to change their hearts. It was there to lead them. But Jesus makes sense out of the Old Testament. You see, that's why their understanding is blinded. is because they were not reading the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. When I have Jesus in mind, it changes my reading of the Old Testament and all of a sudden, revelation starts to happen. So today... How do I read the Old Testament? Receiving the witness of the prophets to Jesus Christ. In fact, there there are stories that it's difficult. You read them and you think, man, I don't even know the point for my life, never mind Jesus. There's a story in Judges. And and, and, and we're not getting into nitpicking that every single thing... um, (laughs) It's the adult class, right? So um, if you ever study the Song of Solomon... There's people that make allegories to that that just start, you're like, okay, hold on. That's just too far. You don't have to take that her teeth are like a flock of sheep and equate that most adult humans have 24 teeth 
and then go to Revelation where it talks about the four and twenty elders. <laughs> you can if you want, but you don't have to go nuts with it. Okay? It doesn't mean that every badger skin, the placement of each one, you mean you get you could get caught up in the tabernacle about every single thing and how that points to Jesus and this and that. I, I don't think that's what it means. I think that there's an overall picture that in the story, and like I said, there, there's a story in Judges about, uh, it, it's a weird story that ends up with a lady getting chopped up in pieces and sent around to all the nations of Israel. That's a weird old story. And I, I haven't got a personal analogy from my life yet. <laughs> but I do know at the start of the chapter it says, this happened when there was no king in Israel. And I do know that if you don't have a king in your life, it's going to get messed up real bad. You find Jesus in everything. Every passage of the Word of God points to Jesus in some way. The pointing is not always in the form of symbolism. Sometimes the prophets pose a seemingly impossible problem, but these problems always find their solution in Jesus because Jesus is the answer. The Christian is to read the Old Testament, understand this, through the lens of Calvary the lens of Calvary. Here all questions about God, the scriptures, and life find their answer. This is how Jesus himself taught his disciples to read the scriptures. He did not negate the Old Testament. He said, you need to read it with me in mind now. I explain what this means. Once people read through this lens, they will be struck by the amazing continuity of scripture, that it's one story. This is not 66 books. It's one. It's one book, and it all speaks the same message. It does not diverge from its message. In fact, that's when we start to realize, when we say the book is inspired, that it's a miracle, that over thousands of years, the story has maintained, the prophecies are true. When we read them through the eyes of Calvary, all of a sudden, we see that it starts to make sense. That the children of Israel, when they left Egypt and came out of sin, they went through the Red Sea, baptism, that a cloud followed them, that there was a fire there. And when the day of Pentecost... Okay. I got to finish up so the teachers can Clorox their rooms. The child John grew into a man and he lived in the desert east of Jerusalem where all the prophets before him said the Messiah would reveal himself before entering the holy city. That's why he was there is because the prophet said this is where the Messiah is going. He claimed in his teaching that the Messiah, which would be one mightier than he, was near at hand. And what did he use to, uh, uh, to validate his statements? He quoted the Old Testament. And he demanded that the people repent, the mountains fall down in readiness, because the Old Testament, he saw it all of a sudden through a different lens. In due time... A lowly 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth, a small town, leaves his hometown and he heads east, crossing the valley, going past Jericho, and he comes to rest at the banks of the Jordan River, where he knows his cousin is baptizing people, John. He's preaching and baptizing on the banks of the Jordan. This 30-year-old carpenter was, of course, Jesus, and he came to be baptized. From the accounts we get, the, the lines were pretty long for baptismals. Pretty long. 
And Luke's gospel says Jesus didn't cut in line. He stood in line, waiting. Man, I don't know. You, you know, um, as people get older, they start getting caught up in songs, you know. <laughs> I think I'm starting to do that. That just reminded me of a song that you sang as a kid, but man, it gets me every time. It's a simple, simple song. He was there all the time. He was there all the time. Waiting patiently in line. He was there all the time. I mean, that's some genius lyrics right there. They really, I'm kidding. But it convicts me that he was there the whole time. When at last it was Jesus' turn, John saw who was next, and he became visibly shaken. Prophecy is being fulfilled in front of his eyes. John may not know Jesus by sight. There was no Facebook, FaceTime. They lived far enough apart in those days that, that they may not really have spent a whole lot of time together at all. And John has lived in, in the desert now for several years. But heaven had told him he would know the Messiah by the sign of the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Some visible manifestation of the Spirit was settling over the figure from Nazareth and John asked for the honor of being baptized by Jesus. But Jesus insisted, no, you need to baptize me. Because it was prophesied he had to fulfill the law. And when he came up out of the water, suddenly a dove descends from heaven. The Spirit alights on him. John had reached the pinnacle of his life. It was time to send his disciples to follow this one. And they did. Time had passed now, and the crowds that had once come to see John weren't coming quite so much anymore. They were all going to see his cousin. The banks that had once teemed with people, lines of people waiting to be baptized, were now empty. The waters that had once been continually stirred now rested easily. They'd all gone farther north to hear Jesus, but he'd said it himself. He must increase and I must decrease. And it was at this point that Herod saw his chance. When the crowds of people were there, <clears throat> that wasn't the best time to say, man, I'm, I'm capturing this guy. But now the crowds are gone and, and the popularity was not there anymore to stop them. And so he now arrests John, his sermons echoing into silent canyons. He was vulnerable now. So Herod arrests him and takes him and imprisons him. From his prison cell, the prophet sends a message. His message was actually a question, a simple yes or no question. A single word would suffice. And he simply sends some disciples to find Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Do we look for another? And Jesus could have answered yes or no. Isn't that just like the Lord? We ask him a simple question. All he needs is a yes or no. Jesus' answer contained a lot more than was asked, and it came directly from the Old Testament. A direct quote. Jesus says to the disciples, Go back to John, tell him the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All these were promised by the prophets. We don't hear anything else from John, nor are the words recorded. In fact, even before he's executed, we don't have any last words recorded by him. 
He's the last prophet of the Old Testament, the first of the New Testament. And he passes. But we know that he was the hinge between the two Testaments. He embodied the fiery Old Testament prophets that came and proclaimed that he even wore clothes similar to that of Elijah, that he wandered in deserts, that he wandered around. He wasn't the typical kind of guy. But when John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He uses their, pro- their, their prophecies, their language, their testimony. And when he does that, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was not just his words, but it was the weight of every prophet before him. All of a sudden, because the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament writers, that they would write of things that they did not know and they tried to understand them, but it just didn't quite make sense. But when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all of a sudden every prophecy that they had ever said, every word that they had ever wrote was summed up in Jesus Christ who was being pointed to in that moment. It was their words, the ones penned in Scripture that pointed to Jesus Christ. And just as the Apostle John would, would pen in recollecting Jesus' own words, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. I'm never amazed at how they use the Old Testament. When you read the story, in fact, it's a challenge to me, when you read the story of Philip as he goes to Samaria and he preaches the Gospel there, and then Peter and John come and lay hands on him and they receive the Holy Ghost all of a sudden... Scripture tells us that Philip is translated to the desert. Just suddenly he appears in the desert. And he happens to see a guy in a chariot going by, an Ethiopian. They stop because, wouldn't you if a guy suddenly appeared? Where'd you come from? He gets up in the chariot, and the guy is reading from Isaiah. He's reading the Old Testament, because there was no new. He's reading from the Old Testament. And And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, nope. And you know what Philip does? He talks to him about what he's reading and what what does the Ethiopian decide after Philip explains Isaiah to him? I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. That's an amazing thing because there's more than Acts 2.38. I believe Acts 2.38, but this whole book is Acts 2.38. And when I suddenly start, in fact, it changes the way that I read Scripture. I, when, I, when I realize that every single story, I need to find Jesus everywhere. It makes me view it different. I wonder what it would do inside of us if all of a sudden we start to see Jesus everywhere in Scripture. You know what I think it does? It helps me see Jesus everywhere now. When I start seeing his path all through history, that he was there all the time, it helps me to see him everywhere in my present and everywhere in my future as well. You see, that's the challenge. All of a sudden, I see that it's all pointing somewhere, that I find eternal life in the Old Testament, that I find Jesus, that I find his sacrifice, that I find the promise of the Holy Ghost. And if it's all in there, all of a sudden, man, the weight of this, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, all pointing to me in this moment in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the Word of God. I'm thankful for its inspiration. I'm thankful for its testimony that it is true and right and faithful. That's why now I can believe that the Word of God is settled. It's something sure that I can rest on what the Word says because it continues all the way throughout Scripture. 
So trust his word, believe his word, find Jesus in every part. I challenge you to read scripture differently. When you go to read your Bible, think, ask, ask him. Lord, I want you to let me see you in this passage. And you don't have to try and pull it out some weird way. No, I believe that when you pray, God reveals his word to us. And all of a sudden, I begin to see Jesus in a whole new light. Let's stand this morning. And I want us just to pray that today. Lord, I want to see all of you. Lord, I want to see every part of you. Lord, I want to see you throughout all of Scripture. I want to understand your word. Because it's given to me, all of it is given by inspiration of God, and it's all profitable for me. I want everything that I can get out of the word of God. Let's join together in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word, that you've kept your word, that it is settled. Lord, I thank you that I can, I can trust your word, God. And because of that, Lord, I pray that you would open my eyes of understanding as I read your word. Lord, that you would open my eyes to see that you are everywhere, God. That it's your story and that you are present throughout every, every letter of the Old Testament, every letter of the New Testament, God. I want your word to affect my life. I want to be able to see all that you have done and then believe you for the present and trust you into the future because you hold all things in your hand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here in Sunday school. I know we're ending just a little bit early, so we've got a little bit more time uh, in between services, but uh, greet one another from a distance or somehow, whatever you want to do. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll be starting service here in just a few moments. Mm -hmm.